All right, we are going to the book of Jeremiah tonight. So if you have your Bibles open with me to the book of Jeremiah. One of the things that I've learned from this study, the word of the Lord, seeing Jesus and the prophets by Nancy Guthrie, is that, you know, I can read these really, really helpful summaries But what this study does so well is it takes me into the passages and I read them and I start digging in. And that's how I feel like I really get to know a book. So what we're going to be doing is introducing some of this information and then taking this approach and opening and looking at passages and figuring out how these uh, go together. So that's really our our plan for tonight. And we're going to we're going to cover the book of Jeremiah tonight because next Sunday Eric is going to be following up with the book of Lamentations. So um, I'm excited for that. I'm sorry we ran out of handouts again. If y'all would just stop coming, we wouldn't run out of handouts. (laughs) Sorry, that's a bad joke. It's not even funny. Um, When you hear of the prophet Jeremiah, when you think of verses and passages within uh, the book of Jeremiah, what comes to mind? What are some of those standout things in the prophecies of Jeremiah. A lot of mourning. A lot of mourning. Uh, weeping. It's called the weeping prophet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What else? Jeremiah 29.11. Jeremiah 2911. Who else was thinking it? <laughs> I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Right. Yeah. I know the big one is like covenant theology, like Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. It's huge. The new covenant. Yeah. Yeah, Hmm. Very good. Yes, Brenda. Jeremiah two, where it says um, that the people had turned from the springs of living water and gone after sisters for themselves that water. Wow. What? A condemnation and what a conviction that that is for us. Is that around verse 8? Am, am I way off? It starts at 11. 11, okay. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's that's a horribly beautiful image. Other things. Okay. Well, we're going to start uh, here with the introduction, where Jeremiah is called, often he's known as the weeping prophet. He wrote at one of the most uh, critical times of the life of Judah, uh, on the brink of exile by the rising world power Babylon. And uh, what I found was really interesting uh, as I was looking at at the book uh, is that the weeping, since he's a messenger of the Lord, is often the weeping of God that Jeremiah himself communicates. And there are instances, well, uh, one, one, one guy says that um, it's intentional as you read through the book of Jeremiah that you can't quite tell if it's Jeremiah weeping or if it's God weeping. 
He says it's intentionally crafted that way because Jeremiah, as the mouthpiece of the Lord, is supposed to be communicating the Lord's heart. And so uh, I find that interesting. And so when you see uh, Jeremiah weeping, there are some instances where it is Jeremiah, but there are some other instances where it seems to be God himself weeping. Uh, And so we get a glimpse now in Jeremiah, more so than any of the other prophets, into the heart of the messenger. You get to see the suffering that Jeremiah endured. We get to see the brokenness in his heart that he um, was enduring as he was carrying this message, uh, which we'll return to this in a minute, but that's, in some senses, he's really foreshadowing Jesus. He, the glimpse into the life of the messenger and the, the suffering servant there. So Jeremiah is, is kind of a, um, a precursor to the suffering servant. In some ways, which is a really, uh, I think, a really cool thing to look at as you as we go through the book. Uh, so we see into his heart, but we also see into his life. Y'all remember the types of oracles we looked at a little bit ago? One of them is the enactment prophecy. I'm going to pull this back up. This is from our introduction to the prophets. One of them is the enactment prophecy, where the actions on the part of the prophet accompany and illustrate the message that God gave them. And you see this multiple times here. We see bizarre enactments on Jeremiah's part. Um, He bought a loincloth and then put it in the ground and it spoiled. It's like, all right, I got underwear. I'm going to put it in the ground. And guess what? Now the underwear is spoiled. Israel, your pride is now spoiled. Like this underwear. So the the actual, the actions that he did were to reflect the spiritual reality that he was trying to show. Yes? Not the only example, like that specific example. Doesn't Ezekiel also do something related to undergarments? um, I'm ashamed that I didn't look this up in more clarity. One of them was was often just running around naked or in in underwear. Um, Is that Isaiah? I... I remember Ezekiel being the real performative one. Like, most of his stuff yeah, was... Yeah, and yeah. Jeremiah's definitely not the only one who does that. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there are some weird enactments. Um, I think the example that we provided in the original... Okay, yeah, you're right. It was, it was Isaiah. Isaiah was the one who walked around stripped, because uh, the word strip and exile are the same word in Hebrew, uh, in order to illustrate what Assyria was going to do to Egypt and to Cush. Um... Ezekiel does too. Jeremiah does here. Uh, he, he wore a yoke bar in chapter 27, and he didn't have, he wasn't married and he didn't have children to show the destruction of Judah. And we see that in uh, chapter 16. It's not verses 1 and 2, it's verses 1 through 4, but there we go. And so Jeremiah began his ministry around the time of Josiah's reforms upon the discovery of the book of the law. So uh, Josiah, what's notable about King Josiah? He takes seriously the law of God. He takes seriously the law of God. Why? Uh, doesn't he, re- he receives? He receives the prophet. Right? He finds the book. Oh yeah, in the temple. They found the book in the temple, and he read it. And his response was weeping, mourning, and 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 saying, repenting, and drawing the nation back to faithfulness to the law. <clears throat> Um, so that's what's going on with Josiah. Josiah was also a very young king. He was made king at eight years old. But I don't know if it was 18 years later or if it was when he was 18. That's when the book of the law was found. And that's about the time that Jeremiah was called. Jeremiah was 13 when he was called to being a prophet. And so um, Josiah and Jeremiah are definitely contemporaries. Um, and so we'll see that the message of Jeremiah actually 
um, grew out of that rediscovery of the book of the law and continued to push for the purification of Israel and obedience to the law. Jeremiah chapter 1, go ahead and flip over there, tells us that Jeremiah ministered during the reigns of Josiah, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah until the captivity of Jerusalem. So that is 626 to 587 BC uh, for his ministry. There is a lot of international turmoil going on at these times. I don't know if I put this in here. Oh, I mentioned it at the very first paragraph. Babylon is rising to power. Assyria is on the way down. Ashurbanipal, who was one of the last um, powerful kings of Assyria, had died. And then uh, Babylon's on the rise at that point. Um, Baruch is the name of the scribe and the compiler who constructed the anthology of this book. So Jeremiah is actually a collection of a bunch of Jeremiah's writings. It's also um, a collection of things written about Jeremiah, um, ordered and compiled by this guy named Baruch, who was a scribe and a compiler. And by the time... Um, Jeremiah was called by God here again back. Sorry, that was, the Baruch thing was kind of a, a sidestep back here. By the time Jeremiah was called by God, the northern kingdom had been gone for about 100 years. Assyria was in decline. Uh, Babylon defeated Nineveh in 1612. So that's uh, 14 years into Jeremiah's ministry. Uh, the, this Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Uh, and Babylon began to consolidate power. Egypt attempted to break free, and Judah was caught in the middle, first making an alliance with Egypt and then with Babylon in 605. Judah then rebelled and was conquered in 597. They rebelled again, and Jerusalem was destroyed in 586. So that gives you a little bit of a historical sketch as to just the turmoil that the nation is in right now. And a lot of these judgments are going to be described for us uh, as God's judgments for the sin of Israel in breaking the covenant. So uh, the outlines here, there's the book starts, this comes from um, the Bible Project. So you can compare it with the outline presented by various other people. And every, every outline looks a little bit different, especially with books this large. But there are some checkpoints that everybody shares. And I think this outline captures those pretty well. Uh, there's an accusation and a warning for Israel in the first 24 chapters. The accusations, now if you think back to the three types of oracles that you find in the prophets, sin, punishment, restoration... The first 24 chapters are full of sin and punishment, and it's sprinkled with restoration. The restoration pieces, you'll find, are so powerful. Uh, I, I believe it was Jeremiah I was reading about a week ago-ish, where it says the volume, the quantity of sin and punishment oracles is massive, but the quality of the restoration oracles is even more massive. So what we're going to see in the Restoration Oracles is um, really rich in the book of Jeremiah, even though there's tons and tons of sin and punishment accusations in this book. So Babylon is uh, explained to be that judgment, and 70 years of exile are laid out there in chapter 25. Then there's judgment and hope for Israel in chapters 26 through 45. Then there's judgment and hope for the nations, 46 through 51, and then destruction and exile. Uh, that's of Jerusalem in chapter 52. I think uh, sections three and four of the outline there, the judgment and hope for Israel and then for the nations, shows us that God is dealing on a larger scale than just the defense of a national people. 
He's dealing on the spiritual level of those who believe and those who don't. And so Israel and the nations receive the same punishment. Babylon is raised up to be a power for judgment, and Babylon is taken down in judgment for their sin. And God uses those things for his glory, not the glory of people. And so I think that's an important uh, thing that, that we'll see here when we get to the message in theology. Questions about those first three sections before we get into the message in theology? Comments? Questions? All right, let's keep going. Um, before we... Um, let's see, how do we want to do this? I'm trying to figure out how to work in these notable passages you see on the right side of the page. Let's go ahead and look at Jeremiah 2 since we're here at the beginning of the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 2 is a good representation of Jeremiah's ministry as a whole. And although he prophesied over three kings uh, in a, quite a large span of time, chapter 2 seems to be a good representation of what his message was. Now, chapter 2 is long. Uh, but... I want to give you a minute just to kind of skim through it. Don't necessarily try to read every word, but try to skim through it and see if you can pick up on a couple things that sound like they sound like prophetic prophetic calling that you know from Scripture that Jeremiah might repeat. I think. Did you want to? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Um, I think the the statement about idols. Verse four: They went after worthlessness and became worthless. The power of idols to make you like them. Mm. Yeah, we saw that with Achan this morning. The what he worshipped was devoted to destruction, and so he became devoted to destruction. You go after worthlessness, you become worthless. Yeah, it is interesting to see how like. He says, like, thus says the Lord. Mm-hmm. Like, he's not, like, he's not, like, just giving them, like, a lecture. He's, like, repeating, this is what the Lord has said about mm-hmm. what's going to happen mm-hmm. and what is happening. Mm-hmm. And I think, I feel like, the, the rest of the book of Jeremiah is, is pretty much just that. Yeah. Directly from God. It is. And that, that hits on both of the tasks of biblical prophets. One is to be the mouthpiece of God, to communicate what God has said. The second is to be covenant prosecutor telling the people how they've broken the covenant. And so really chapter 2 includes a lot of details about how they've broken the covenant. Back to Brenda's uh, verse, uh, verse 13. You have sought your source of water from something that you have built yourself. You've sought your source of life from something below God. Uh, and then you see on, in verse 23, um, the accusation that they have gone after the Baals. They have searched for their, uh, they've worshipped other gods. They have forsaken the Lord your God. Verse 17. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? So you see uh, throughout chapter 2 a bit of a summary of Israel's sin and Jeremiah's role in calling them out for it, prosecuting them for it, and telling them what is deserved for their sin. One thing, well, two things that really stood out to me when I was, was thinking, all right, study the minor prophets. We've, we've looked at Isaiah together the last couple weeks. What about Jeremiah kind of stands out? Uh, and, and for me, it's in his message, 
There's a lot to do with nations. There's a lot to do with the national scene and the powers and the authorities that are there. Specifically, there's a very common uh, reference to Babylon. And what what we'll see in this theme is that God uses nations to judge and then he judges nations um, all in his sovereignty. God is in control. He does things as he sees best. Flip over to chapter 18 with me. Oh, man, on your way to 18, stop at chapter 7. I'm sorry. Chapter 7 is one of those notable passages at the end of our handout there, which is Jeremiah's sermon of a kind. Um, It is. It's a sermon. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. You see there in verses 5 and 6, they are being accused of um, oppression, of injustice. You also see that they are described as faithless. That's in, they're, they're described as a whore in chapter 3. They're described um, in terms of promiscuity, just like Hosea had said to the northern kingdom of Israel, right as they were about to fall. And God even says when we get to the new covenant, he describes himself as the husband, even though this bride was so faithless and played the whore. Um, they've served other gods. You see that in chapter 5, chapter 9. They've broken the covenant. You see that in chapter 11. The prophets have lied. You see that in chapter 14. You see that their shepherds have not shepherded. Um, if, if you can remind me a little bit, I'd like to go back to chapter 23 to talk about that a little bit more. Uh, they've broken the Sabbath. You see that in chapter 17. Their heart is desperately sick and wicked. You see that as well. Uh, but here in chapter 7, this is um, Jeremiah's sermon against Israel saying, here's what you've done. Abominations. The temple has become a den of robbers. You know that phrase. That's what Jesus, um, the phrase Jesus used as he was talking about the temple. Okay, and we could go, we could go on and on there. So back over to uh, chapter 18. Potter and the clay. I want to read here the first 11 verses. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Now, everything we've read so far, uh, Elijah mentioned this a minute ago. It's the word of the Lord. It's the word of the Lord. The Lord says, thus says the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord here in chapter 18. Uh, That makes these... Uh, messenger oracles, according to our introduction to prophecy handouts. So we're identifying them. These are directly messages from the Lord. And um, a lot of these are sin and punishment oracles. But we continue. Uh, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. Another enactment prophecy. 
The Lord is showing him through Jeremiah's actions of going down to the house where the potter is, uh, what the message is. And this is slightly different because it's God's having Jeremiah enact for himself to understand rather than Jeremiah enacting for the people to understand. Um, but anyway, uh, verse five, then the word of the Lord came to me. Oh, house. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Verse four. We skipped that one. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Oh, house of Israel. Can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intend to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am shaping disaster against you, devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. What a gracious God to continue to allow this opportunity for repentance. Uh, but keep, keep one finger over there in Jeremiah 18. Go back to Jeremiah 1. Jeremiah 1, in the call of Jeremiah, you, we get a glimpse into something that we just saw the Lord doing. Jeremiah 1.10. I'll go ahead and start in verse 9. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. What words are repeated there and in 18? There it is. There it is. Pluck up, break down, destroy and overthrow, build and plant. This is the message that Jeremiah communicated. It shows up throughout the book of how he, how the Lord is the one, who, even the whole empire of Babylon, God can pluck up. It's, it's quite a, a, um, a gentle image of a little weed in the garden. Pluck. That's all Babylon is to God. Yet he can decide to plant and he can decide to destroy. And he does that with Babylon in judgment against Israel. And he does it against Babylon with uh, the Persian Empire. Is that right? Persians and then, and then Rome came after that. Um, I'm working on my history game. You know, I'm working on it. Um, but back to Jeremiah 18, you see God is saying, I reserve the right to do as I see best. With history, with nations, with you, O Israel, if, if I deem that, you know, you're spoiled in my hand, I can make you into whatever I want. And then you see Paul using that same metaphor in chapter 9 of Romans, um, I believe. Yeah, it's, it's, does the clay have any right to say to the potter, why'd you make me like this? So that's the potter and the clay. God's sovereignty is very clear. Israel is being prosecuted for her sin. We looked at that list already, but let us look specifically at one of these sins in chapter 23. The shepherds have not shepherded. 
Flip over to Jeremiah 23. And I think this is important. Well, I, I know this is important, but I think it's especially important in relationship to us as a church plant, knowing that God has always intended for the leadership of the church to be those who shepherd, who nurture, who care. And look what the shepherds of Israel are doing in, uh, in Jeremiah 23. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. I read that as a very sobering thing. I know that as soon as I, as a shepherd under Christ, start doing things my way, I can very easily destroy and scatter the sheep of the pasture. And, and so this is something that every church needs to be aware of. Um, there's never a church where this is going to be done perfectly. The, the shepherds will always mess up. Um, and it says in verse 2, Therefore thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who care for my people, or I think what that really means is who are supposed to care for my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away, and you've not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. And then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be, dis be missing, declares the Lord. Who's the good shepherd? The Lord. The one who gathers them from the nations, who gathers the remnant out of all the countries where they've been driven. He's the one who will attend, who will tend to them and care for them and make them fruitful and multiply. And so if ever a shepherd is not, not serving with Christ as the authority over him and as the good shepherd, then that is not a shepherd. So your job, once we get to the stage of nominating and training and electing elders, shepherds for this congregation, is you need to get to know these men. Get to know if they are going to be shepherds. They're the kind of men whose character aligns with the biblical qualifications who will care for the flock. Thoughts on that? Or anything so far. I need to move where I put this because that squeaky spot gets me every time. <laughs> All right. Let's keep going. Um, Babylon is used as a tool for judgment. Look over at Jeremiah 21. So just back a couple chapters. Just look at the heading of 21. Jerusalem will fall to Nebuchadnezzar. Inquire, verse 2, inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is making war against us. Okay, and uh, it goes on to say, um, look at verse 10, for I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. All right, so here now, Jerusalem is going to receive the judgment of Babylon. And look over at chapter 25. Chapter 25 is uh, very specific in describing that this the, the people of Judah are going to be sent into captivity and exile for 70 years. This was after Josiah. So Josiah reigned um, pursuing the Lord and tearing down all the other idol worship places across the nation. As soon as he died, his son Jehoiakim was just terrible. And so here now Jehoiakim is on the throne 
Um, this is the first year also of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. You see in verse 1 of chapter 25, in which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem for 23 years from the 30th, 13th year of Je- Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. Verse 7, yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, I don't really want to know what the therefore is if I'm the one who's being accused of not listening to the Lord. But here it comes. Because you have not obeyed my words, I will send forth for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing and an everlasting desolation. And then you see the cup of the Lord's wrath starts in verse 15. Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Verse 27. Then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, drink. Be drunk and vomit, fall and rise no more because of the sword that I am sending among you. Okay, there's the Lord's wrath. There you see God's sovereignty on display. There you see um, God using nations for judgment and as judged. One last thing that's really important to the story of um, Israel's rise and fall in the ministry of Jeremiah is the very last chapter. Go to Jeremiah 52, maybe for a little context, flip flip back to 51. Jeremiah 50 is judgment on Babylon. Jeremiah 51 is the utter destruction of Babylon. Chapter 52 is the fall of Jerusalem. This side-by-side is really powerful. Babylon, who had punished Jerusalem, is now being punished, utterly destroyed, and also, let me remind you of the fall of Jerusalem. That's what Baruch is trying to get us to understand here. Chapter 52 is comparing Jerusalem to Babylon and receives that same punishment um, of of being um, burned and destroyed and the people being exiled. So uh, you see, I'm, this is the note at the bottom of that middle column, Babylon is judged. In Jeremiah 50 through 51, the judger, and I, I actually made up that word judger, uh, becomes the judged, the judged, because I want to preserve this. There is only one true judge who's doing all of this. Uh, and it is uh, Yahweh, the one who is at work judging and using these various elements, or various nations to do it. Um, how far would I be jumping ahead if I go ahead and jump in here? Not very far. That's good. Let's do it. End of Jeremiah 52. The very last four verses. Jehoiachin released from prison. So, let me pull out my... I don't have it. I left it at home. I was going to pull out my timeline, but that's okay. We're good here. The 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah... In the twelfth month, so this is as the uh, this is during the exile. On the twenty fifth day of the month, 
evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments every day of his life. He dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs until the day of his death as long as he lived. Why in the world do you think he would end the book like this? Babylon destroyed. Jerusalem destroyed. Oh, by the way, Jehoiachin got to sit at the table of the king of Babylon. This is intricately tied to the covenant of David. This is powerful because of the covenant God had made with David, that the kingdom would not depart from David. And here, Jehoiachin, king of Judah, of the line of David, is restored to a place of honor as a little glimmer of hope right at the end. It's a very powerful glimmer of hope that God has not ceased to show kindness to his people and he has not ceased to pursue the fulfilling of his promises. The brightest glimmer of hope at the end of Jeremiah uh, is based on that Davidic covenant and we see it right here. But this comes, uh, Jeremiah prepares us for this because if you look in chapter 23 and chapter 30 and chapter 33, there's all these promises that there's going to be the branch from the line of David again that's going to be raised up. Like that shoot from the stump of Jesse, there's going to be that righteous one who will reign. There, there's going to be this Messiah who's going to come and fulfill all the promises. You see that in chapter 33. I really recommend you go and read those verses. They're really uh, powerful verses. Uh, and with all that, then we're primed to see, oh, wait, is there any hope for David left? Yes, right at the end, there's that glimmer of restoration. And this in the form of a little historical narrative. <clears throat> the new covenant is crucial. Let's flip over to Jeremiah 31. In terms of biblical theology, this is one of the richest sections of the book. Now, all of chapters 30 and 31 and 32, and maybe even 33, let me see. Yes, all those chapters are really dealing with this grace uh, of God toward Israel and Judah and restoration of Israel and Judah. But chapter 31 specifically gets into this promise of the new covenant, starting in verse 31, and it uses this language of new covenant. So let's look at Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. That husband language is important because it reminds you of their faithlessness to their husband that he's already accused them of for 24 chapters. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Listen to the new covenant. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful covenant. It's 
It's called the new covenant. And of course, we know that this comes to its fullness in Jesus, who ushered in that new covenant. Uh, you can look there at the, the bottom, approaching the New Testament. Jesus is the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. Uh, Jesus says in Luke 22, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And in Hebrews 9, he is the mediator of a new covenant by his own blood, we see later in that chapter. Jesus is the, the uh, inauguration of this new covenant. But I also think it's really important for us to note that this is still, on the meta level, the same gracious covenant that God has had with his people even since uh, Adam and Eve. So he's still graciously, at this point in Jeremiah, he's still being gracious to his people. He's still, they're still saved by what Christ has done, but it comes in such clarity with the sacrifice of Jesus as the explanation of how these things are done that it's called a new covenant. And, and we actually relate to God uh, through this covenant um, so clearly by faith. It's laid out so clearly by faith. And, and same with the Old Testament, again, because it's still the same covenant of grace and it's always received by faith, just like Abraham believed and his faith was counted to him as righteousness, not his works. But the Old Covenant with Moses was a lot of do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this as a gracious showing of what it looks like to live in relationship with God. Whereas the New Covenant uh, emphasizes that Christ has done it, 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 and you're able to then be in that relationship with God by faith. So your relationship to God now is through faith. You're able to draw near to him through what he has done. Uh, and his spirit is within us, and that's where we see that the law is within them. And it, God says, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And um, the I think the church and, and the... The community of, of faith in verse 34, we see a, a glimpse. Uh, it's not in its fullness yet. It's not that everybody knows the Lord fully, but it does anticipate that last day. And so has this new covenant been fulfilled? Yeah, it's already been fulfilled, but it's not yet in its fullness. You know, the already not yet dichotomy, right? It's a rich theological thing. Um, so this, what's being promised is already accomplished in Christ. We're already tasting it, yet there is still this glorious future for Israel that we still also anticipate with the return. When everything is restored, the, the, the plans that God knows he has for his people to prosper us, they come in fullness when Christ returns and reigns and wickedness is cast out. And there are no more um, oracles of sin and punishment, yet only mentions of restoration and grace and hope for eternity. Jesus is that branch of David. He is the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. He is that suffering servant, as Jeremiah was a foretaste of, who foreshadows Christ, um, anticipates Christ. And um, as Jeremiah was the weeping prophet who weeps for God, so Jesus wept over the sin of the people and uh, was faithful to suffer for them. And that's how we draw near. That's how we receive not what Achan received, but what Rahab received. Those who are welcomed in. Comments or final thoughts, questions here on Jeremiah? Yes? I read that New Covenant section in chapter 31. Mm -hmm. um, I would struggle with, like, I would put my law within them and will write it on their hearts. no longer have to teach his neighbor or each brother. Yeah. Like with 
the thought of like noticing a lack of perfection of knowing like the law yeah. of the Lord and like still needing teaching and guidance. Mm-hmm. So I, I usually don't know how to come to terms with that. Yeah, I think that's it's helpful to look at that with the the already not yet mindset. The law is written on our hearts. Uh, Romans tells us that it's. Um, but for believers in particular, who are commanded then to live according to Deuteronomy six, where we teach it to our children, we talk of it, we speak of it when we rise and when we sit. This is supposed to be baked in who we are as the bride of Christ. Uh, it's a regular part of our gatherings when the word is preached. It's uh, it's something that we respond to in our confession of sin and our assurance of pardon. Like, this is God's word uh, that is uh, written on our hearts, and yet because we are not fully shed of the sin flesh it's not perfect and and that isn't fun but it's uh that doesn't stop christ from working on us and bringing us closer and closer to perfection when finally on that last day that's going to be so fully true of us it's going to be unbelievable and we're going to delight in his law and we we delight in it more and more as we you know every every five years maybe you can do a check like do i love god's law more um hopefully the answer is yes you know as we grow more and more with him in our in our lives until that last day when we just say, there is nothing more beautiful to live by than the law of God. And I don't have to, once we get to the new heavens, the new earth, we're not going to have to turn to our neighbor and say, hey, let me tell you about the Lord. He's like, let me tell you about the Lord. It's going to be a beautiful place where we're just sharing constant stories of God's faithfulness. So I would say that is happening. And, and so that, that, that clause where it's like, well, you're not going to have to tell everybody about the Lord. That's a, the church is supposed to be a picture of that right now. Imperfectly, yes. It's, it's already starting with Christ, but it's not yet complete, and it won't be until he returns. Does that help at all with wrestling with that? Because like, we don't see this fully, but, but we do see it in part, and we are anticipating it in fullness. <clears throat> okay, let me pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we are those who get to be seated at the table of honor. We praise you that you have ordained all things for the good of your people and your kingdom and your glory. And we pray that we would respond with obedience. That we would hear these words and be called to change and to deeper love for you and deeper knowledge of you. I thank you for this gathering and for these people. Would we go from here encouraged and blessed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.